Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. How is everybody today? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Middle of the week. What, two more days to go this week after this? It's been a long week already. First sunny day in ages here. I'm really excited about that. Oh, my. Last night, it was the rain last night and finally stopped. And this morning, it was beautiful. Of course, instead of working in the yard like I wanted to, I had to run errands. But that's okay. That's life, right? Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. Welcome to the California Haunts Paranormal Investigate. Cal- well, California Haunts Radio Show. Uh, I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. I'm also, yeah, I'm also the owner. That's right. I'm also your host tonight. That's what I was trying to do. I got it backwards. Who knows? Who knows why? But anyway, I want to welcome everybody. I'm going to let you guys know we're 45 strong up and down the state of California. So if you think something weird is going on in your house, you think it might be paranormal, give us a call because we just don't look at paranormal causes for stuff. We're looking at logical causes for stuff. So it may not even be paranormal. It may be something else going on. And that's what we do. I have people on my team from the working world, you know, from the working society, contractors and things like that, that know what to look for. All right. Anyway, if you're watching from Facebook today, welcome. And if you haven't done so already and you like what you hear, please be sure to uh, click that like button and be sure to uh, follow. Okay. Same thing with watching from YouTube. If you, like what you see and you haven't done so before, please be sure to uh, follow up. Well, subscribe. I've got over 500 videos sitting over there. And I'm a journalist. Okay? It's, it's, it's what I do in real life. So I like to change my topics around. You know, uh, paranormal is great. No, I love paranormal, but I also love helping people. I love being able to help people through guests. And tonight, just, tonight's a perfect example of that. Uh, my guest, Dr. Randall Bell, we're going to be talking about trauma. And personal trauma and how people can take that trauma and turn it into something good in their life and work and work with it. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And I'm really excited about that. A couple announcements. I will have, and I keep saying this, but I will have the, the uh, Patreon set up tomorrow. I'll give you guys a link and everything for that. So, you, so I'll have that Patreon set up. And then I'm also going to have an announcement on Sunday about the uh, TikTok. And there's going to be some stuff going on at TikTok that we're going to start doing as well. Okay. So just be on the lookout for that and uh, for those two things, and uh, we'll start rolling. Okay, without further ado, I'm going to bring my guest on. And uh, thanks, everybody, for coming ahead of time. And I hope that we all hang in here and ask him lots of questions about what, you know, what, about his stuff. Excuse me, my, ah, I don't know. I've been out driving all day. Okay, here we go. Hello, sir. Hi. How are you, Charlotte? Good. How are you? Great. I uh, I've worked on a lot of crime scenes, so maybe that we can uh, talk about some of that too. But uh, I'm glad we're going to talk about something uh, important like trauma and trauma recovery. Cool, cool, cool. Tell me about you, sir. About me. Well, I grew up in Southern California, and um, I uh, what can I say? I ended up in a very odd career where. I studied disasters. I worked on everything from the World Trade Center, Fly 93. Uh, speaking of crime scenes, I worked on John Benet Ramsey, O.J. Simpson, 
um, Sandy Hook, uh, Pulse Nightclub, and uh, hundreds of cases. And I work as an economist and I study the the uh, the disaster recovery projects. But in the process, I meet people behind the statistics. And that's what brought me to my fascination of trauma recovery, because I noticed some people do better than others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of stories, movies and stuff where you see where people end up a lot stronger after going through trauma, too. Oh, yeah, no question. It's, it's, it's as if uh, the trauma kind of wakes you up to something that was kind of hidden or latent. And all of a sudden you tap into that fuel. And uh, in my research, I, it's a phenomenon I call post-traumatic thriving. It's as if uh, you have this new awakening and this new energy and you, you tap into it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think people have different levels of that? Like you said you know, just a few minutes ago, where some people are, are quicker at it than others or more apt to, to do that. That's a better word for it. Yeah, good question, because I, I, I divide the book into three parts, the book Post-Traumatic Thriving, and, and it's dive, survive, and thrive. And to kind of answer that question, some people get into this circle of trauma and they never really recover. And I, I don't say that to be like judgmental. I haven't mm-hmm. been through what they've been through, but that's, that's just the reality. Uh, some people get back on their feet and uh, survive and they get back to where they were before before the trauma and that's that, that's a big accomplishment but the the group of the segment of society i really kind of f- uh, focus on are the post-traumatic thrivers so to answer your question why that is i i think the best answer i have having studied this for 15 years is that it's a conscientious choice i mean people get knocked down, they get slammed. And at some point, some people, the lights come on and they say, you know what, I, I am not gonna dive. I'm not just gonna survive. I, you know, my old worldview is gone, it's shattered. And, I, and I'm, I've got a lot of energy and I'm gonna channel it towards a cause or something that's really powerful. And it's, as I say, it's a conscientious decision. Mm-hmm. As I know, I've known people in my life, you know, when we've gone to see disaster movies and the person has looked at me and said, well, that would be me. I'm going to die. You know, I'm not even going to try. I'm going to die anyway. And I just thought, not me. Get out of my way. <laughs> I'm getting my way because I'm getting the hell out of here. You know, yeah. So, yeah, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, there you go. My mother always laughed. You know how you cross the street with your mother holding, holding their hand, holding her hand when you're little and car would come and I'd shove her back and move over. That was real bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah. So you do run into those kind of people. But I guess you know does does it depend on the on the on the kind of trauma they go through? I mean, because I mean, as, as a newspaper reporter, you know, and looking at, at at shootings and and all these other things, you know, on the crime beat. I mean, there, there's different types of traumas. I mean, there's your house burning down trauma. I mean, there's losing somebody close to you trauma. There's you know, there's there's a real violent stuff that goes on. So does it make a difference which type of trauma? Not really. Um, the, the bottom line is it, it really doesn't. I mean, I got a story in here, the one woman who lost her husband to suicide, uh, a guy who um, had his uh, daughter pass away because of the nuclear test sites on the Bikini Atoll, a woman whose uh, she and her husband lost her house to a, a landslide, a, the guy that actually came up with the term post-traumatic stress disorder. He's in here. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he was a Vietnam vet. Jerry Jewell, you know her from uh, ABC's Facts of Life, first right. disabled person to ever land a, 
uh, uh, starring role on network TV. Uh, she was born with cerebral palsy. JC went to prison for murder. Uh, Leo Fender invented the electric guitar. He was blind. I mean, I could go on and on. You know, I got a Holocaust survivor in here. But the, the while the different types of trauma are very diverse, it seems that there's a common denominator in terms of how to heal from it and how to how to go move through that process successfully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think? You know, like when a person gets in, gets into a situation like that. What do you think is the first thing that happens to them? Like you say, something happens in the brain that snaps them to say, "Hey, I'm 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 not going to let this beat me. I'm going to survive." What, what do you? Think <laughs> well, I think I think the first part of that is that's really um, a very deep question because the, the, I'll first tell you what not to do, and it's the classic uh, mistake people make having been through a trauma of stuffing their feelings down and hiding it and not press it, processing the anger. It's okay to be angry. Um, not dealing with the depression productively, um, not ever really, you know, clinging on the, to the denial stage. These are all classic symptoms of people that don't move past, but the people that do successfully process through the shock, the anger, the denial, and they ultimately land on depression, all completely normal. But if you get stuck in depression more than two or three months, you really need to seek some, some professional help. But people that have moved through that and really felt the, the process, they will oftentimes inherently move on to that stage, the, the more uh, intermediate and advanced stages of, of thriving. But like I say, you got to, like Oprah says, you got to feel the heal. And, and she's really right. You have to process through it. And then that's the common denominator. Everybody, uh, at least that I've studied, uh, that that's a thriver really dealt with it rather than avoided it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, like talking about the different types of trauma, is there any particular type of trauma that you've seen that, that affects people worse than others? Or does, or is it just a balance? Because I mean, I mean, even losing a parent, like, like my 80, my 88 year old mother, I mean, that, that was traumatic in itself because, you know, she's no longer there and all that. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the way I address it in the book um, is that we're not in a competition. And I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you, right. you meant that in your question, but, no. uh, you know, something might hit me and really take me down and the same thing hits you. And it's like, yeah, big deal. You know, so, you know, I, I, I don't know how to really put my finger on that because we're all built differently. We all have different thresholds. I will say that to be fair, the loss of a child is every parent's nightmare. And mm -hmm. that is a profound loss that mm -hmm. seems to be uh, in a, if there's a special category, I would probably say that's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you were saying that, it <clears throat> made me think about the show, the TV show, Frasier, when uh, the father had, a, had the, 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 the tiny heart attack is what they called it. And he goes to tell his girlfriend, he doesn't want to tell his girlfriend about him. She says, ah, that's nothing. Let me know when you've had the paddles. <laughs> <laughs> she walks away from him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, nice. that's understandable. I've also had a friend that has lost, that, that lost her son and she, and she's still going through a lot of trauma right now. And it's, it's been a few years, you know, that she still feels that loss tremendously. 
was she and she or any other parent always will it's not a matter of getting over it you don't get over something like that you don't get over uh, the loss of a child or a murder or a rape or some you know the being the victim of a horrible crime um but you get through it and and understanding the difference is part of being productive and healing and we've had uh, i have a podcast by the same name as the book post-traumatic thriving and I, we had one guy on uh, Dr. Ken Druck, who's a psychologist, but he lost his daughter. And so he speaks from experience. And, um, you know, he still is dealing with, with, uh, and he'll always deal with the loss of his daughter. I think it would be, I think it would be unnatural. I think it would be, frankly, it'd be odd for somebody to say, I'm over it. You, you don't get over this, something like that. Is there truly closure for people that, that, that have lost someone? Or does it depend on how they? Or does it depend on how they lost them? <clears throat> I, I, you know, closure is an interesting word. Um, you know, one of the big myths that we grow up—at least I grew up with—was forgive and forget or get over it. And I, I have to revert back to the fact that we, you know, closure sounds final, and uh -huh. and you know, true trauma recovery acknowledges what happened, but the goal is to allow the memory of it to pass through the brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking physiology now right, without right. being re-triggered. Uh, in other words, the Vietnam vet that comes home and, you know, Shad, whose story is in the book, mm -hmm. you know, he now hears a car backfire and he doesn't hit the deck and he doesn't right. go into the fight, flight, freeze mode that is classic uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. He hears mm -hmm. the back, the car backfire and it's the car backfiring. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's forgotten what happened to him in Vietnam, which was horrific, mm -hmm. but it, uh, the memory uh, does not allow you to get triggered and have that high sense of emotion and then revisit the trauma emotionally and physiologically with the heart rate and the blood pressure and the anxiety and the fainting. Mm -hmm. uh, that's well, that's what we're trying to move through and and get past that. Now, what are ways to get to, to get through this? I mean, trauma is hard to get through. It, it is, and and I have respect for anybody that tries. In, in the book, in chapter one, I introduced what I call the dynamic duo, and I'm I am very happy to share this because these two factors alone cure an awful lot of trauma, although they're simple. <clears throat> excuse me, they're, they're very, very powerful. The first one we call grounding. It is, um, you can call it by different names. You can call it uh, meditation, Lamaze, deep breathing, yoga. I, it doesn't matter what you call it, but simply closing your eyes and deep breathing physiologically, even seven breaths, seven minutes uh, or 20 minutes. But, you know, like I say, just a few breaths you can literally put a blood pressure cuff on somebody who's having anxiety and have them start breathing deeply. And you can just literally watch it drop, 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 drop. There's studies out of Harvard uh, by Sarah Lazar that where they, they, she actually measures brain activity and, and uh, the growth of the brain um, in, in various healthy ways. And you can measure the growth from a regular practice of deep breathing. In, in prison where I volunteer, in uh, jail where I've had a, 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 a Sunday ministry, you know, thing that I do, uh, the deep breathing really calms the blood pressure physiologically and emotionally. 
that's grounding. The second of the dynamic duo we call sitting in the fire. And that means having the uncomfortable conversations. You know, that's what I love about talking to you right now and to the audience is, is we're talking about this ugly stuff, you know, and bottling up inside, you start an internal war. And we had a guest on the podcast recently. His name's uh, Wes Gear. He's a rock star. He played for Corn uh, for uh, as a guitar as the guitarist for years and performed in front of audiences for uh, you know eighty thousand people. And he said something absolutely profound. He said the quality of our life is in direct proportion to the, the to the difficult conversations we're willing to have. And so sitting in the fire finding a trusted person, preferably a therapist because they're trained and they won't re-traumatize you, um, really has a profound therapeutic effect. Very interesting. I know I, <clears throat> I use a lot of meditation, you know, because I, I believe in that, getting that yep. calm space. And for people that, uh, like, like, for instance, I, I, I know someone who lost a sibling and it was mysterious how, you know, how it happened. How do you get through something like that where there's no answers, you know, where the coroner says, oh, we don't know? Well, I was having that conversation uh, this week with someone very close to me. She, and she lost her uh, her son and uh, similar circumstances. And the first thing you do, we find really helpful, in, particularly with the prison inmates and, and their victims who, uh, who up at San Quentin, who sometimes even sit down together after going through the, the program for a couple of years and sit down together and, and at some level reconcile. But um, the, you know, it goes back to the deep, it, it really is this deep breathing and, and, uh, and the um, sitting in the fire. And w one thing I, I wanted to mention before I lose track of it is if you don't have anybody to talk to, and you don't want to traumatize your friends by talking about it or see you haven't found somebody trustworthy you can share this with and i don't i don't suggest you share it publicly but journal just just writing it down is very very helpful so get it out of your system so i think i wandered off your question but i wanted to make sure i got that in there that's perfect um you know we were talking about the different types of trauma earlier and i was just thinking of of you know like, you know, people that have lost, like, like we said, people that have lost loved ones, things like 911, you know, as far as you're trying, as far as the people you've interviewed, is there a difference in, in the type of trauma that, that, that they've suffered? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I, I, I'd say like the, the, the first is losing a child, a parent losing a child. Right, the right, the right, other right. is a, ch a, a childhood trauma. Childhood traumas tend to be, um, more difficult than an adulthood trauma. I mean, by the time you get to my age, you know, you almost, you, you don't almost, you just expect it, you know? Right. Um, and, and so I think those are the two top categories, you know, anything that involves children, either experiencing trauma on your own. I mean, in the book, I share my own story because I was born with a congenital heart defect right. and uh, I had open heart surgery when I was 11. And some people say, what's well, the big deal? And others may say, oh, it sounds awful. Well, for me, it was awful because I made the classic mistake of bottling it up inside and um, it manifested itself as PTSD uh, when I was in my late 50s about to do a, a hike in Africa and went in for a routine checkup. 
And so, um, I, you know, the childhood ones are particular because the, the stuff we're talking about isn't taught in schools. And it should be because mm -hmm. trauma is going to affect pretty much 100% of the planet at some point. And the skills to, to deal with it are very simple and very mm -hmm. effective. But we're never taught this stuff. I was never taught it. When I had my heart surgery, the doctors literally patted me on the back and said, hey, we got you all fixed, kid. Go have a great life. But for 11 years, I've been traumatized by all these procedures that were just humiliating and scary and frightening and blah, 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 blah. And it, I never talked about it. My parents never talked about it. We all pretended like it never happened. And then it pops up when I'm uh, 59 years old. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's an example for you. Well, the reason why I laugh is because I ended up with a heart, I had a heart procedure about probably eight years ago. And you know what gets me with that is you're right. They pat you on the back and send you and send you off, but there's there's scars still there because now now you're afraid to do stuff. You know you're afraid to like live your life normally because you're worried about this. You're worried about the heart because you're so you're so conditioned at that point to worry about the heart. You know because you spent like six months waiting for the surgery. So yeah. I understand that completely. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just craziness. <laughs> It took a long time to realize that I could function again. You know, I'm not worried about it. Right. Even though, even though you know, underlying the worry is always going to be there. But I mean, it's not prevalent like it was. <laughs> exactly. When you talk to the people that went through 911, what types of things were, were was caught was causing the nightmares and stuff following that? I mean, I can understand it because obviously the, the building was on fire. But there, I guess there would be a lot of fear involved with that too. Well, you know, it was so interesting because 9-11 uh, happened on a Tuesday, and by mm -hmm. pure coincidence, I do a lot of public speaking, and I was speaking in New York the following Monday, and I assumed they were going to cancel the event, and I was shocked by 9-11 like anyone else. Well, I called the executive director a, a day or two later at, with the assumption of that, and she said, you know what, we would really appreciate if you came out because we're all freaking out, and it would be great to get everybody together. We think it would be healthy. And so I flew out there on a, the Sunday proceeding. And as I landed, the smoke was still billowing out of ground zero. And I, I went to the event, I spoke, and it was, it was bizarre because we were all traumatized. But afterwards, I went down to ground zero, which is a short distance away. Mm -hmm. And I'm not kidding. Uh, young people would walk up to me with flyers saying, hey, have you seen my dad? you know, with a picture on their dad. And, and that hits hard. Um, you know, I, if tears don't come to your eyes, you, you're, you've lost humanity because it was really profoundly sad. And then in the fallout, I mean, I, I've talked to, I don't know, countless people that saw the, 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 the horrific things that happened, people jumping out of windows and, and everything else. And, and, uh, and people who lost their loved ones in nine 11 and, and, everything in between. And it, their tr the trauma there is, is profoundly deep, mm -hmm. but it's also profoundly similar to somebody that loses their child to leukemia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I would never get in a debate who's worse. It's, right, it's right. all right. really horrific. And and that's why I wrote the book and I spent 15 years researching it and writing it and rewriting it until I think I got it right to say, hey, I acknowledge the, 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 the whole thing, 
But whether it's 9-11 or the, the losing a child to leukemia, mm-hmm. here's how to deal with it effectively. It, this is not a magic cure. It doesn't make things go away, but it makes things manageable. And it also, I, you know, I just talked to a woman who lost her child in a school shooting. And she now has a cause. She she's now gotten legislation through Congress. She won't bring her daughter back. She would rather trade all of the accomplishments mm-hmm. for bringing her daughter back. But this really provides profound relief for her to channel that energy into something that might save some other parents from going through the same grief down the line. So that seems to be the magic thing is, is finding those causes, finding those 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 answers that that help mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely i have a question in the chat room real quick let me get in here how does one find the right uh therapist to help with trauma from childhood a uh, wonderful question and and i would suggest getting a trauma therapist therapist because trauma is a unique thing um lots of therapists uh deal with it because it comes up so much but a true trauma therapist you know, it's a matter of asking around. It's a matter of research. It's a matter of trying a therapist. And if it works, uh, great, stick with it. And not being bashful about saying to yourself or to them, it's not working. Um, but it's, um, and there's a lot of free resources. I kicked the book off with 800 numbers and, and a lot of, but the, the neat thing about human nature, whatever, you know, you go to Hurricane Katrina and I, I practically live there, um, is all kinds of trauma therapists and people came in and regular uh, Joes and regular Janes came in and drained their bank account and, and got all the blankets out of their house. I mean, there's this armies of people willing to help and there's also free resources. So, so money or the lack of money uh, should never be a reason because there are free services, 800 numbers to, to help. Because one thing I'll say is as much trauma and as much bad stuff that goes down uh, around the planet, there's always more people that have uh, enormous, um, uh, an enormous, uh, you know, effort to help. I like to think in my own way, I'm helping a little bit because I put the book, we put the book on, uh, Amazon on Kindle for 99 cents. This is not a money play for me. This is just, hey, I've had this crazy career. I've done the research and I want to do a little bit to help. That's all it is. And there's a lot of people that are go far beyond my efforts. Um, so I would just say, get out there and start asking and start calling until you find that right fit. Mm-hmm. When you talk about, uh, you know, like this, trying to find a trauma therapist, is it hard to, I mean, is it just a matter of, of, of talking talking to someone on the phone or, or, or you, you know doing a face-to-face is better to find out whether that, that, ter- that therapist will be a fit? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, what do you call it, um, virtual fatigue. <laughs> and I think a lot of people do better, at least I do, sitting down face-to-face. Mm-hmm. I, I had... Um, I'm not ashamed to say I had a therapist for a while and it, it, she insisted on just virtual and then COVID ended and there was no reason for that. And she still insisted on virtual. I thought, you know, that, you know, that doesn't work for me. Um, I like sitting down with people, but that's just my own preference. Find what works for you. Um, but I think for me, sitting down face to face when you're talking about stuff helps. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have gone like well, like you said you 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 were at uh, 9/11 and you've you've been at some major disasters. Can you tell us about a couple of them? Well, sure. Um, I my first I I was, started this in the 1980s and the cases I was doing as an economist were like landslides and wildfires and uh, the L.A. riots. I'm from Southern California. And um, cases like that. And then along came the O.J. Simpson case. And that was um, that was a deal changer because I got to know the family. And I was at the kitchen table when Denise Brown had an epiphany because she, Denise is a very wonderful person. She's very cool, very friendly. And um, that's how she normally is. But of course, you know, with, with her sister uh, murdered, she was outraged as any reasonable person would be. And she was at the table and she was really, frankly, pissed off. And then she she said nothing for a minute and there was a silence. And it was as if a light bulb came on and she said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to channel all this anger uh, and all this rage. And I'm going to, and I got now I've been introduced to all the domestic violence experts around the country. And I'm going to start talking very openly and, and about domestic violence. And it's an ugly topic. I mean, who wants to sit around and talk about domestic violence, but she, she made it I, it, really think about society before OJ, nobody talked about it. And now it's talked about all the time. And it all started, in my opinion, with Denise Brown getting on TV and, and opening up that ugly conversation. And I've been at events where there were lines out the door of women and a few men who thanked her profusely for opening up that conversation. So, you know, what's these disasters, we see them on TV. And of course I do too. But behind the scenes, there's things like that going on. And I, I've seen, I mean, we can talk about them all you want, uh, sure. but I, I tend to see a lot of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was just thinking of a case that I was following in Woodland of a old woman that they lived in a trailer park and um, they found her, her husband dead of a, of a shotgun wound. And they started to look through everything and, and nobody realized that this family had a lot of, there was a lot of domestic violence and it was mostly her beating him, you know, doing stuff to him. Wow. And as it turned out, they figured she, she was standing over him when she pulled the trigger, she had knocked him down and she was standing over him, you know, <laughs> emptying the gun. But there were creepy things like, you know, um, she would make her shopping list like on the bedroom mirror and her lipstick. Hmm. It was weird stuff like that that was going on, but it turns out that 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 they were both alcoholics, and so mm-hmm. they would drink, and then this 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 would start would start, and um, you know that that could have used some counseling, I think, you know, in that situation. But there's cases like that, and that's that's domestic violence right there, you know. Yeah, sure is, sure is, um, and and that's a big problem. Um, you know the <coughs> excuse me. Um, Another case that comes to mind is the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, the the gay nightclub. And I'll tell you, I walked in the the front door, and I'm embarrassed to say it now, but I walked in uh, somewhat ambivalent uh, over the whole LGBT issue, and I walked out the door being an ally. Um, you know, with with the with what I saw there. I mean, um, the, the the bullet holes in the blood. I don't even want to get into. It was right. really horrific. And, you know, there's, 
there's stories with all these cases, you know, Sandy Hook with the school shooting. It was very creepy being in the house of Adam Lanza, the shooter, and seeing on every level of the house remnants of his um, mental illness. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, the bedroom and the bed where, his, where he shot his own mo mother before he went to the school. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but, you know, moving beyond that, I, I'm always got my eyes open for some message or some something to learn that can be productive to society. I mean, we pay as a society a big price for all these crimes and all this stuff. My angle is, I, I, by the way, I don't have any uh, morbid curiosity. I, I wait till the bodies are gone. Um, Heaven's Gate is a great example. I, I went in the day after the 39 bodies were, were gone. But but I'm always looking for what can we learn from this and, and be more enlightened. And, and I don't know if enlightened is the right word, but more productive as a society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I agree with you there, too. Um, I'm not into morbid curiosity, but as a newspaper reporter, you tend to be on scene, you know, and, and, and you see the bodies, you, you see you see the, the fires, you know. Yeah, you get to see all that stuff. But it's not very pleasant. I mean, I've been on stuff that's really made my head go like this you know and i've had yeah. to figure out, out of it because it's like a police officer you go out you see this stuff and you have to have a certain attitude because otherwise it gets to you yeah absolutely and you know first responders they they have different ways of dealing with it and they mm -hmm. need counseling and sometimes they you know some of them have kind of a uh, you know they deal with it with kind of a shocking sense of humor mm -hmm. if you want to call it that um you know, I think it's important whether you're in my role or a first responder role or your role as a reporter or just any person out there who deals with raw life mm -hmm. to know your threshold and know when to back off and know when it's really getting to you and have a set of um, practices, if you will, that are... Um, I don't know if the right word is therapeutic, but but something as a relief. Like I'm up here skiing. You know, for me, right. skiing in the winter is uh, I I have an impossible time thinking about uh, disasters while I'm skiing. It's just pure fun. And in Southern California, I go to the beach very very frequently. Same thing. That's what works for me. So being aware of of kind of self care. Mm -hmm. is a really big part of the conversation is part a big part of what I write about in the book is, mm -hmm. is having that awareness, knowing what your options are, identifying what makes you happy. Where's your happy place and going there and taking good care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Um, when you've interviewed people, have, have they been more open to speak with you or are, are they closed up? Because I know sometimes it takes people a little bit to get used to somebody to really want to talk to them. Yeah, I, I've had these conversations for decades, and the thing, the, the short answer to your question is no, not everybody's comfortable, and, and or some people are willing, but they start talking about it, and I can, I, I see the signs of post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, the trembling and the shaking, and I back off immediately, and I say, I, I appreciate your willingness to help, but your health is far more important than my research let's just, let's just save this for another day. And, and so some people are not ready to talk about it. I'm not a therapist. I've never claimed to be. Um, I, I 
like to think I'm empathetic and I like to think that uh, that I am respectful and that goes a long way in, in terms of uh, helping people feel comfortable. I don't share stories without permission. Mm-hmm. When, when I, um, you know, I just was uh, literally on Jeffrey Epstein's island and all his properties and I can't talk about it because I signed a confidentiality agreement. So I can say I did it, but mm-hmm. I can't talk about it. So people and clients know that they're, you know, if I say I will not talk about it, whether I have a written document or not, um, I keep it confidential. I say all of that because it's important to find somebody who can handle the conversation and who will keep their mouth shut because, mm-hmm. you know, gossiping or blabbing re-traumatizes people and we don't want that. I think one of the hardest parts of what I did for a living was having to interview people right after a trauma. Mm. Like if someone yeah. had lost a loved one in a car accident or something like that, having to go ring that doorbell and talk to them about it really used to get to me. I used to get irritated with it because I thought, you know, these people just lost someone. Yeah. You know, yeah. I should be here doing this, but I mean, it's part of the job to do that stuff. You see it all the time on TV and everything, but that yeah. was something that I, I felt really bad about because I, I knew they were traumatized and really to have somebody up, up in their face with a, with a recorder or a mic Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing a news uh, thing down in San Diego. I forgot the lady's name. She was the lady who went to prison for killing her husband, who was a doctor and his uh, new girlfriend or fiance or something. And um, we were in front of the house filming and the people that live there came out outraged. So it's kind of almost dangerous sometimes to to do that because and, you know, that shock, if it's not properly processed, or managed, it can last for years. And I can't imagine what, what you went through in the immediate aftermath. Right, right, yeah. I used to feel horribly guilty. I had hor- horrible guilt over it. Uh, question from the chat room. It says, why do therapists, when uh, being talked to about a traumatic I gotta get in here, su- subject, oftentimes take you off the subject and to something not related? Oh, why do therapists take us off the subject? Yeah. Unrelated? Yeah. You know, I I think the most productive answer to that question is sometimes therapists sense that the, the therapist, a, a good trauma therapist is trained to really read the patient carefully. Mm-hmm. And if they see any signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, to back off um, and not the big goal is not to re-traumatize people. And if they sense that maybe they're they're um, eliciting too much of that re-traumatization by talking about it, they may back back off. It may be that they're also a lousy therapist and they're just, their mind's wandering and not focused. I, I don't know. But um, that would be a reason why a good therapist would do that conscientiously. Now, when we talk about taking traumas and turning them into something positive, You've given a few examples of, of, of people, of, you know, of people that, that, that you know of. Yeah. Um, how can somebody, I mean, it's hard. How can somebody get their mind shift to shift out of that to do that? How do you, how do you transition to do something positive? Well, yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, with, with your mind, if, if, if you're that depressed or whatever, or, or you're going through what, you know, the trauma that you're going through and then to turn, turn around and say, okay, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that, like the five stages of grief, which we all know, mm-hmm. are 
I, I really emphasize in the book and when, when I'm speaking about it, it's normal. Um, and so to, you know, to get to that transition point, you got to process all five stages. You know, things happen, you know, and, and, and in the book, the other term I use a lot is rinse and repeat. In other words, you might get to the more advanced stages of thriving, you know, being acceptance or forgiveness or gratitude. Um, not being grateful for the trauma, but grateful for the lessons of it. Um, but you may have revisit and go back to the anger uh, or have flashes of shock. It, that's, again, understanding the physiology that this is, this is absolutely normal in and of itself is, is helpful. So, but to progress, you, you, I'm, I'm convinced you got to go through each of the 15 stages. There's five chapters in each stage. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people don't realize, everybody, most, most people know about the five stages of grief, but a lot of people don't know that there's an academic research and literature called post-traumatic growth, mm -hmm. uh, which comes out of the University of North Carolina. And that's a little more obscure, but it's very powerful. And so what I did with the book to, to kind of get at your answer the best way I can sure. is I start with the five stages of grief. Then I build a bridge. I call it the survival bridge. And then I get to the five stages of growth, which are sound academic research. So it's the first book I'm aware of anywhere in the world where you start with the initial shock and you work through the entire thing through the literature of grief to survival and self-care and then to post-traumatic growth and what I call post-traumatic thriving. And... Um, and um, the people that do it just get through, they they work through each stage. You, mm -hmm. you sit. I sat down with with a dozen people and I interviewed them. And sure enough, they didn't need me to teach them. They just got it naturally. Mm -hmm. um, they process each of those fifteen stages at some point on their own. And and that's kind of the point is to keep movement, keep movement rather than than sitting stagnant. Mm -hmm. Like the dog has, because that way you're, if you're sitting stagnant, those thoughts are going to keep coming back. And like you say, to be doing something constructive. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with yeah. that 100% too, because of what I've been through. Um, what's your advice for somebody that that might have something happened to them? You know, like you say, to go talk to somebody right off the bat after after something has happened to them. What's your first piece of advice to somebody? And the immediate aftermath of the trauma yes. is accept help. Uh, trauma recovery is not a solo exercise. There are a lot of people that want to help and a lot of people don't want, they, they don't want to feel weak and accept help, or they don't want to uh, acknowledge that they need help. And yet we all do in that circumstance. And, you know, yes, it's, it's appropriate to have, solitude and and moments of privacy and and all of that but intermixed with that should be a healthy dose of of uh inner reactions with others family friends people that have our best interests at heart and mm -hmm. also the the therapists and the army of people that are willing to help just accept that help is probably one of the biggest things the biggest mistakes that people make i made the mistakes myself as a kid I didn't talk about it. I didn't ask for help. And if anybody brought it up, 
that wanted to help, I shut them down. And what do you know? I had PTSD in my 50s as a result, which I've, I'm over now. Um, but but that's, uh, those are big ones. Is there ever too much help, uh, you know, for that people want to help too much? I think help equates to love. And um, I, I don't think there's ever too much love. I, okay. I, th I think that, uh, but, but you got to balance that with the, with, with self-care as well and having your own alone time. What I'm saying is more holistic, accept the help, accept the love, the outpouring of love, and, but also um, be aware of what you need and taking, taking alone time if you need it. Sure. Uh, and it's not all one or all the other. You got it. I mean, some people do the opposite. They distract themselves. Um, <clears throat> they distract themselves um, with, with constantly being surrounded with people and never sitting quietly and deep breathing and meditating. So it's really a balancing act between those quiet meditative moments and being around good, healthy people and accepting that health in, in my point of view. Um, the question, that question I have just came up in my mind was somebody that surrounds themselves with people all the time and or somebody that throws themselves say into work because they don't want to have those feelings. Is that a bad thing for them to want to, to want to hide that or, or should they be more open about it? Well, I did that. I'm, you know, we're all addicts of something. And uh, I don't want to say all because there may be somebody that's not, but I'm a workaholic and that's how I self-medicate. Um, others drink too much. I work too much. Some people take drugs. Some people are exercise. They take exercise to the, the extreme. I got some friends that do that and they've blown out their artificial hips three or four times. You know, we can all do things excessively. So yeah, the, um, we, the workaholism, you know, is, is something I look at things a little differently. I look at, I like to think I, I look at things a little more compassionately because I know, I know somebody who went through a horrific trauma and she was telling me that every night she passed out drunk. Well, that may sound, you know, to be judgmental, that may sound like, oh, you know, what a stupid thing to do and all kinds of harsh judgments. Well, she said, it, it, it saved my life because I wanted to commit suicide and I got so drunk, I passed out and I didn't go down to the bridge, which I had thought about all day. And mm -hmm. she did the same thing every day for months uh, drinking excessively. So, you know, in that case, excessive drinking saved a life, which mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. So I tend to back off the self, the, 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 the judgment, but being aware of, you know, excesses, whether it be work or alcohol or drugs or exercise or all kinds of things um, is a, is kind of a first step of, of healing properly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I know there's people that, like you say, there's people that say, hey, get over it. Uh, you need to take the time to mourn. You need to do this. You need to do that. But like you say, for everybody, it's it's different. You know, not, one size doesn't fit all with this. Well, yeah. And, and that's why, you know, th th this book took so freaking long to, to write. It's 400 pages because I'm laying out all the options, at least everything I could uh, you know, find in my research. I'm sure there's others. But I'm laying, it's kind of a menu for, you go to the restaurant, you don't order everything on the menu and eat everything on, available, 
but it's nice to know what's available and to have, you know, thoughts come to mind to say, you know, I never thought of that, you know, mm -hmm. that might work for me, you know? Right. And, and so I went to a lot of effort to lay out lots of options, lots of therapies, lots of uh, fun activities, uh, lots of hobbies, lots of um, choices mm -hmm. so that people can look at the menu and say, you know what, that doesn't work. That doesn't work, but that might work and give it a try. Mm -hmm. I know something that helped me too was a book that I, I received from one of my cousins after my mother died. It was called the orphaned adult. Mm. And it was, yeah. dealing with, it was dealing with the trauma. I mean, I have, I have sisters and brothers, but they, they're not here, you know? So I was dealing with the trauma, you know, with that trauma of having taken care of my mother for 11 years. And then suddenly she was gone. Yeah. You know, yeah. go from there. So I think that helps. So yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, as far as having that help, and maybe you might find a, a helpful book or something that that's like this book, for instance, that helps you get into that frame. You know, to to move on from that trauma. Yeah, I mean, where else can you get fifteen years of research for twenty yeah. bucks? And I'm not just talking about my book. I'm talking about lots of books. Sure. And and I think everybody's bringing something to the party to make make things better. What's the what's the um, you know, is it in the because you've talked about some, you, you in the beginning of the show, you talked about some famous people who had come through trauma. Can you share some more of those with us? Oh, well, sure. Uh, Jerry Jewell, I mentioned, <coughs> excuse me. Um, she, as I say, she's the first disabled person to land a starring TV role. Norman Lear discovered her and uh, at a comedy club in LA. Well, I, I happened to have gone to high school with Jerry and I knew her sister well, Gloria. and Jerry was, I mean, she was born with, with uh, cerebral palsy. So she was disabled in high school when I knew her back then. And I've always been amazed because she always had a crowd around her. She was always entertaining. She has a wicked sense of humor. And, you know, after her family had a choice, a very, a very clear choice. It was basically, hey, Jerry, we feel sorry for you. Let's get an easy chair for you and a, and a TV and a remote and uh, stock the, uh, the fridge next to you with beer or whatever and enjoy your life. Uh, this is what you got with this disability. They decided, you know what, Jerry, you're smart, you're funny, you know, you figure life out. And they, you know, uh, encourage, you know, encourage her to get into the game of life in spite of her disability. And look at her. She's, she's spoken at the White House three times. I mean, she's, She's been on network TV. She just did the Deadwood movie on HBO. She she's a, a dear friend of mine. I see her frequently. In fact, I just talked to her yesterday. And she just wrote a book, um, which is coming out shortly, with a foreword by Norman Lear. And the point is, is that um, these are inspiring stories. If Jerry Jewell can do it, and there, there's yet another example. The other, the other one I love to talk about is Leo Fender. He, I grew up in Fullerton, a little town in uh, Southern California. And Leo Fender uh, lived two blocks away. He had a glass eye. He was deaf because uh, some ampl amplifiers blew out his hearing. And he didn't let that stop him. He invented the electric guitar. Today, they sell a billion dollars a year in guitars mm -hmm. that he invented. And um, <coughs> excuse me, another great example. That is another great example. I was thinking of Marley Matlin too. Well, say again. I was thinking about Marley Matlin too when you were talking about people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's examples all around us, and I love talking to people that have been knocked down 
and work through it and get back on their feet. It's just crazy fun to talk to people like that. Absolutely. Um, what do you say to someone that, that, you know, that, that you've interviewed that said, Hey, I want to come out of this and I'm looking at doing this. Do you, are you able to help, help them get the first step started or, or is that something you leave to therapy? Well, I'm all, I'm always careful to, to remind folks that I'm a researcher and I'm a sociologist, I'm a socioeconomist. So I have a background in sociology and economics, but I'm not a therapist. So I get a lot of emails saying, Hey, here's my problem. What should I do? And I, I, I wish I had magic dust to sprinkle on everyone and right. make all problems go away, but I don't. Um, and I, I, um, so I'm probably not, I'm always careful to say I'm probably not the right person for that. Um, you know, read the book. It's on Kindle, 99 cents. Follow the advice because the feedback is that the stuff really works. I, I mean, already the, the reviews and the feedback are pretty strong. So I feel confident that what the research that has been done is, is very productive. I'm so glad you did this research. The stuff needed, it needed to be done and have somebody write it so people could read it. It helps people. That's what's important about it. Well, well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I enjoy doing it. I love seeing people get back on their feet. I love giving a book to the, the kid at the car wash and going back two weeks later and him saying, hey, I've implemented some things and and uh, I'm going to make something out of my life. You know, it seems like a lot of people are walking around the outside. They look fine, but inside there's something going on and I'm trying to do my little part to, to help out. And when you say it took you so long to do it, how long did it take you to write this thing from start to finish? 15 years. And and the thing that's embarrassing is I got through the whole manuscript and it was ready to go to the printer. And I realized through the discovery I had of my own post-traumatic stress disorder that I was, I guess, subconsciously writing the book for myself and dealing with my own internal stuff. Sure. I had to go back and rewrite the entire book. And I, I shifted from a kind of a, uh, you know, professorial, you know, you need to do this and do that and prescriptive and this to more of a, hey, we're all in this together, myself included. And let's, you know, have that attitude as we all sort through it together. And it, it changed the entire vibe of the book. And and then that was, a, it took years to redo that. Uh, but it had to be done. Did you have to do, and I know you interviewed people for this, but was there a lot of research involved as well? Oh, tons. You know, I went to Hurricane Katrina and I went to a pastor and she was kind enough to rent a room out to me. And I interviewed dozens of people from, that had had their houses blown apart and lost loved ones in Hurricane Katrina. And I recorded their interviews, had them transcribed, put them through word frequency analysis to, to identify the, the themes that, that people hit on most frequently in terms of, of recovery, um, things like that. Uh, and, and I did surveys, uh, 5,000 people around the world uh, and identified various daily habits that translate into good results. I'll tell you, one of them is just making your bed. Uh, it puts the brain into a productive mindset. So, yeah, an, an enormous amount of research of my own, primary research of my own, an enormous amount of research that other scientists have done and compiled that. And then 
what good is that without sitting down with real people and talking to them to see how this stuff really works? I, I did all three. Fantastic. And now I just had, I had a thought while you were saying that. I know, again, I'll go back to being a, a newspaper reporter. You know, you, you cover so many of these stories and they're, they're not the happiest stories in the world. Like you mm -hmm. talk to these, you know, like, like you talk to these victims and this trauma. How are you able to write and not get into a, a certain mindset, you know, of you getting depressed yourself writing this stuff? Yeah, I think uh, I'm self-aware that I am, I don't slip into depression easily. Although um, I think all of us, including me, if we're honest, say we can have, you know, those blue days or blue weeks and just acknowledge. I mean, I, I try and practice what I preach. And realize that's normal as mm -hmm. part of the process. But you know, being aware, being aware, and being aware that hey, when I'm feeling blue, I got three or four happy places. I'm gonna go to the beach. I'm gonna right. go skiing. I'm gonna um, go to. I, I belong to the Magic Castle up in Hollywood. Uh, again, impossible to be depressed in the Magic Castle right. with all the shows going on. So everybody's got it. Uh, you know, some for some people's movies. But right. you know, being aware of your threshold. And when you're getting there, backing off and do things that you know you love to do that will will kind of make things better. Absolutely. One more question for you. And I thank you so much for coming to begin with. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I love the book. It's a terrific book. And uh, yeah, I just think it's a great book and it's, it's good for people to read this kind of thing. My last question is you're in Las Vegas. You're on the strip. And uh, you have your own little book bookstore, right? Yeah. And there's, there's three or four other people with similar <laughs> books. How do you get people to read your book? Well, I hope they read all of them. Um, it's like Leo Fender discovered that people buy more than one guitar. You know, they and he he was friends with uh, Gibson uh, and Les Paul. Um, but I, you know. My book is good for a lot of people, but I don't try and oversell it. You know, people should browse it, peruse it, look at the reviews um, and see if it's if it vibes for them. And if it doesn't vibe with them and they buy another book, all I got to say is I'm thrilled that they're doing something for their own self-care. Um, I'm a I'm a really horrible salesman, aren't I? But but I, but if it does vibe. Uh, I'd love to hear about it because I love this conversation we're having and I can't thank you enough for, for opening up this conversation because it's, it's so critically important and it helps people. It is. You're right. It's, it's very important. You know, if, if, if I can help one or two people out in that audience or you and I can help together doing this show, then I've accomplished something. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your evening. And uh, uh, after I, oh, how do people find you? Sorry about that. I almost forgot. Oh, I got so into just, it. Uh, just Google uh, Post Traumatic Thriving and the podcast, the book. Uh, if the people want to get in touch with me, just go to drbell.com. I'm easy to reach. Okay, great. All right. I'll also show, because uh, you, you, you have several books out. Plus, you have some real estate books out and stuff. But I'll I'll go ahead and show them the you know the <laughs> okay. non real estate stuff out uh, the, the, that you have out as well as your websites and stuff when we sign. Cool. Out. Thanks Thank so, you much. so much, sir. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too. All right, I learned so much with this, and yeah, in fact, you know, like he says, I started to take it back into my experiences. Couldn't help it, you know. It's a career that I've had. 
But uh, yeah, any help anybody can get if it helps somebody, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Tomorrow we're shifting gears back into the paranormal. Lynn Monet is coming back to spend some time with us. If you remember, Lynn Monet was the person uh, way back, I think about a year or so ago, who bought a house fairly cheap and realized that even before they moved, she moved in, that the house was haunted by something dark. And so they, I don't think, I don't think they ever officially lived in the house. They might've spent a couple nights there, but they, they got out, but she's back because she uh, has some stories to tell. She's, she's a nurse and she has been working in, in, in hospitals and, and, and she's been witnessing death and, 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 and the ease and, and things like that. So she has a lot of stories to tell about that. She's written a book. So she's going to be with us tomorrow, 6 30 PM Pacific, uh, for uh, interview. God, I'm kind of out of it today. I'm tired. Anyway, again, if you like the show tonight, please do share it with somebody. Let, let people know about it. This is important, especially this show. This show is very, very important to share, okay, because you want to get the word out about trauma recovery and stuff, because there's so much of that going around, especially now with these with, with these mass shootings and everything else that people are, are connected to, and, you know, it's just it's, it's just a crazy world right now. But, uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Hunts Radio. We want to get the, and the whole point of it all is we, we're trying to get the word out about the show. So the more people that know about us, the better. Uh, if you're again, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you heard, please show please show me some love. You know, give me some thumbs up, some hearts, or or whatever. But uh, show me some love. And uh, if you haven't done so already, please follow us. Uh, via Facebook, you can find me all over Facebook. Okay, you know California Haunts, my name. Also, I'm also on Instagram. I'm Ghosty Gal, all lowercase on Instagram, and we are over at Twitter at Cal Haunts at Twitter. I am also at TikTok, and we are under California Haunts, all lowercase at TikTok, and we are also at, at Twitch. I believe we're Cal Haunts at TikTok at uh, Twitch. So, you know, there's many TTTs, right? Twitter, TikTok, and yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah, please do that. And I will have a big announcement tomorrow to, to, to launch our Patreon. And again, I'm going to tease that out a little bit because we are going to do some really cool things over there. Anytime I pre-record an interview with a guest, we are going to show it early over on Patreon. So the Patreon members will get to see it at least a week early before anybody else does. There's also going to be special question and answer sessions. Like maybe this gentleman that was on tonight might want to come back on for one of those. And you guys can ask him direct questions about what, you know, what we talk about during the interview or, uh, or about his book. And that'll be over at the Patreon as well. Okay. So we're going to be doing that over there. Um, we're also going to be doing some special uh, psychic readings with Nancy Matz over there. There's going to be psychic reading days over there for Patreon members. And at the end of the month, uh, this, this is all based on how many members we have. You know, once we start building it up, we're going to have giveaways. It might be a coffee, you know, it could be coffee cups. It could be T-shirts. It could be some, it could be anything. But uh, we're going to have special giveaways over there as well and access to the Discord uh, chat too. So, I mean, there's a lot that's going to be going over there commercial free stuff. It's going to be really, it's going to be a fun place to be over at the discord and that'll help us. I mean, it's five fifty a month and I think that's affordable enough uh, for people and uh, that that'll help us keep, keep on the air and keep us going on the air here and stuff and keep things rolling. Okay, guys, um, I'm going to call it a night and we're going to take a look at his, uh, his contact information and all that. You can have that. And then, uh, I will see you guys tomorrow at six thirty PM Pacific. And thank you all for coming. I see the chat room's nice and full tonight. Lots of questions. And uh, hopefully you guys out in Radio Land are going to hear this. And I'm real excited. And thank you guys for the likes and everything. So here we go. Let me uh, flash this across the screen. And we're off and running. Websites are landmarkresearch.com, 
Corrig, C-O-R-E-I-Q.com, doctor.bell.com. And you've got the Me, We, Do, Be book and the Thriving book, which he was talking about tonight. And you've got Disasters, Wasted Lives, and Valuable Lessons. And then you've got Rich Habits, Rich Life. And he's got other books as well. They're real estate oriented. But you can get those either on his website or on Amazon. Okay, guys, I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, and uh, have a great rest of your evening.